0: All right, welcome to another week of Canon Calls. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing biographer Lee Edwards about his book, William F. Buckley Jr., The Maker of a Movement. You can grab that book wherever it is that you consume books, and I highly recommend that you do. As we talked, I was reminded of Cannon's book, Rules for Reformers, by Douglas Wilson. Doug poaches the political craft of radical progressives and applies it to Christian efforts in the current culture war. The result is a spicy blend of combat manual and cultural manifesto. Rules for Reformers is a little bit proclamation of grace, a little bit art of war, and a little bit analysis of past embarrassments and current cowardice, all mixed together with a bunch of advanced knife fighting techniques. As motivating as it is provocative, Rules for Reformers is just plain good to read. You can get the book at canonpress.com. Now, without further ado, meet Dr. Lee Edwards. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Lee Edwards, distinguished fellow in conservative thought at the Heritage Foundation and a leading historian of American conservatism and the author or editor of 25 books. Mr. Edwards, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Jake, my pleasure. I love to talk about Bill Buckley uh, night and day.
0: That's right. So we are talking about your book, William F. Buckley Jr., The Maker of a Movement, also, Mister Edwards, I was going to tell you this CV of yours goes on for many paragraphs. I th- I think you deserve a well earned break.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's give your your listeners a break. <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> perfect. So, as I mentioned, William F. Buckley Jr., the maker of a movement. the The subtitle there is interesting. Um, would you mind just acquainting us with uh, sort of the political landscape? before Bill Buckley steps on the world stage.
1: Right, right. Well, Jake, it, it is uh something that was really depressing. Uh the what we had back in the in the 50s uh before Bill Buckley started National Review in 1955, what we had was what I call a conservative wasteland. <laughs> uh there were no few, there was no heritage, no Cato, no Rush Limbaugh, no fox no national review i mean it really was a wasteland you had a few isolated outposts in various towns and cities perhaps a professor here perhaps a a, a reporter there a journalist there perhaps uh, a somebody who who might uh, do some political uh, action but it really was a wasteland to the extent that Lionel Trilling uh the number one leading liberal intellectual of the day said well conservatives don't don't really have any ideas and when they do they express themselves in irritable mental gestures <laughs> so that was that was the contempt and the disdain for of which uh, conservatives were held back in the in the early 1950s
0: yeah so as far as a conservative movement goes, sounds like not a lot going on. What was the political landscape in terms of uh what what was going on then what what were what was popular maybe what ideas were uh largely held then
1: right well on the first of all there there really was was no conservative movement there was no no conservative uh presence articulated presence in Congress. Uh nineteen fifty two, uh Robert A. Taft, who had been sort of the leading conservative for a number of years, tried to get the the nomination and lost, Republican presidential nomination, and lost to a war hero, Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh Ike's uh philosophy was he called himself a modern Republican. Uh in other words, let's let's take government and try to manage it more efficiently, more effectively. Uh was good on foreign policy. Uh, we had no wars, but on domestic policy, uh, he and the people around him were totally indifferent to any kind of a, of a governing conservative uh, approach to things.
0: Right. Can you, can you maybe describe briefly how the New Deal uh, still played a role in politics in that day?
1: Well, of course, uh, the New Deal started by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s. Uh, He, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a liberal Democrat, was the first president in our history to say, quote, that the government has a responsibility. And that was his word. It was a responsibility for the welfare of its citizens. We'd never had anybody say that before, uh, not even Woodrow Wilson back uh, when he was trying to put through his progressive plan. So that was the beginning of let's let government handle our problems. Maybe it might be economic, they might be social, they might be cultural. But it began with the idea of a new deal and the government having the responsibility and beginning to create all of these programs, which, of course, eliminated the need for individual freedom and responsibility, a core conservative concept. And even in, in the 1950s, the New Deal was still there, accepted and implemented by the Democrats, and also accepted by, by Republicans. Well, it was said, well, we, we just can't think about it. We have to accept it, sort of go along, and maybe we can trim a little bit here and there. But basically, there was no opposition Philosophical opposition to to the New Deal and to what Franklin Delano Rosa had started some decades before
0: right right so all, all of that's happening uh in the book you cover uh however briefly, but a very interesting childhood of Buckleys. Could you tell us about his relationship mm-hmm. with his father and then maybe how education played a role between the two of them
1: well bill was was his father there were nine there were nine little Buckleys or ten. <laughs> And uh, there were uh, Bill was his fa- father's favorite. So therefore his father paid, paid special attention to him. Uh, and what his father believed, then Bill believed. His father was anti-communist, his father was pro-capitalist, and he was a staunch Roman Catholic. Those are the three things which made a difference in Bill's uh, uh, growing up his youth and, and his education. He was educated, uh, in, uh, in Britain, uh, in England at a, at a a private school. Um, he was then went to a a prep school in, uh, in America. Uh, and then of course went, went to Yale. Uh, he spoke French and Spanish before he spoke English. (laughs) So that was, uh, his father, very much of wanting and to have a, a not just only a, a smart, intelligent children, but also cultural children to have some appreciation for that, uh, made them all have uh, piano lessons, learn how to, to sail, uh, even learn how to fly uh, planes. So it was it really was a very uh, cultured. And, uh, and and uh, one might say elitist uh, <laughs> culture and, uh, and uh, family and uh, environment in which Bill Buckley grew up. But, but one, I, one has to say very, right away that although with all of that background, uh, as I say in, in, in my book, it, that Bill Buckley could have been and might very well should have been, you, you could even argue, the playboy of the Western world, to. Uh, just to enjoy himself for the rest of his life, enjoy you know good food, good wine, good sailing, and all the rest of it. But instead, he chose to be the Saint Paul of the conservative movement and spent sixty years of his life uh, proposing, articulating, and and defending the conservative philosophy. And that's to me is the is an extraordinary. Thing because how many of us have having all those advantages? Oh, well, just the heck, I'm just going to enjoy myself. But Bill was driven by this idea of paying back what he had been given so handsomely, but also building on the philosophy of his father, that anti-communist, pro-capitalist, pro-Christian, if you will, philosophy and belief.
0: I think many folks, when they get to that part of the book, or maybe they're thinking in this part of the interview, Uh, oh, Bill Buckley must have been just like, had no childhood, and I I really, reading that part in your book was, I was uh, encouraged, it seemed like a very cool, like his dad especially, his parents, really built him into the ninja that we would later see on Firing Line, or in his articles, he, it it seemed like there was a lot of intention, and he was, he made good on all of that investment that his dad made.
1: Well, Jake, you know, think about it. I mean, let's say that whether it's breakfast or lunch or dinner, here are these ten Buckley children, and there is the father encouraging them to debate, to discuss, to <laughs> to interrupt, to, to call this and call that and so forth and so. And the 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 Buckley child who came out on top over and over again from an early age, even before he was ten or twelve, was was Bill. That he his ability to debate, his ability to articulate his interests and ideas was all encouraged and and blossomed under the uh, the the Buckley family style of living.
0: If America was such a wasteland in terms of conservatism before uh, before he sort of entered the world debate. Who was it that influenced Buckley? Was, was he sort of just a maverick, or, or did he owe a debt to a few folks?
1: Well, he certainly was a maverick, but, uh, but, I, but I, I recount there were really four uh, intellectual influences on, on Bill and the shaping of his philosophy, and they sort of come chronologically. Uh, when he was a teenager, uh, his father would invite Albert J. Nock, which I'm sure most of your listeners have never heard of, <laughs> uh, Albert J. Nock was an arch libertarian of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, uh, wrote among other things, a wonderful little book called memoirs of a superfluous man. Uh, cause he felt that he was an individualist and this libertarian and that this was going the other way from the, certainly from the new deal FDR style, uh, So that uh, Reverend Nock, who had also been an Episcopal minister, uh, would sit there and have lunch and talking and debating with his father, Bill Sr., and there was Bill Jr. sitting there and listening and absorbing and learning the the libertarian philosophy. So the first great intellectual impact on Bill was this uh, strong libertarian Albert J. Nock. Then when Bill went to Yale, The most influential professor was a gentleman named Wilmore Kendall, who was a traditional conservative, somebody who believed in uh, majority politics, who believed in the House of Representatives in Congress as being the most representative of the American mind. And so, uh, although there had been this libertarian influence, along came Wilmore Kendall and not only uh, taught Bill but also helped to edit his first book, God and Man at Yale. Mm. So there was a traditional influence. And third came Whitaker Chambers, a, a someone who had been a, an American Soviet spy who had been part of a spy ring in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s. Uh, had stolen secrets from our State Department, then sent them off to Moscow, but then uh, had broken with communism. Uh, because of the Hitler-Stalin Pact of 1939, the non-aggression pact of 1939, which precipitated World War II, uh, and then became a strong, strong anti-communist, wrote a great book called Witness, which uh, uh, Bill admired, and then tried to get Mr. Chambers to come on board the editorial board of National Review, so here was this third strain. First, you had that libertarian strain, then right. the traditional conservative strain, and then the anti-communist strain <laughs> of, of conservatism of that day. And this was, all, this was all, these were the influences on Bill. And coming out of that, and the fourth influence was a gentleman named, a professor named uh, James Burnham, uh, who was a former Trotskyite, but become an ex communist, an anti communist, but also was something of a what we would call a realist about politics, not looking for the, the totally uh, 100% approach to, to politics, perhaps more a 70 or 80% approach. So these four men influenced Bill Buckley most the libertarian, the traditionalist, the anti communist, and the realist. And then, if you think about it, and Bill did think about it and did say, well, if we're going to create a conservative movement, you've got to bring these different factions together. Mm. And that was Bill's great genius, that he was this great fusionist. I call him a master fusionist, of bringing together these different strains of conservatism and keeping them together. It's really remarkable.
0: I want to come back to those last two men that you mentioned, but. Before that, I, for those who may not know, who only may be familiar with the guy sitting in on the firing line set, folks may not know that Buckley was a secret agent for, for a few months. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. Well, yes. He, uh, After graduating from Yale, thinking about what is he going to do now, uh, and uh, he had some friends who put him in touch with an operative of the CIA, and, uh, and Bill was sent to Mexico City because he spoke— spanish fluently to be a, uh, a cia agent in mexico city this is in the 1950s I mean, when uh before castro but there was certainly plenty of communism going on in mexico um and uh he would report on and he was a student young still so at the university there he would report on what he heard from the more radical students uh and then would t- tell his handler in the agency what they were saying, but this only last, lasted about a year, less than a year, because Bill said, this is really boring work, I, sitting around and listening to other people talk and then reporting on that I'm, I'm going to resign from the agency uh, and uh, pursue a different uh, different career. And the, and the agency admitted that was probably the best course of action for, for Bill Buckley.
0: And they were vindicated on that, I think. So
1: Yes, indeed. (laughs) Indeed.
0: So one thing I wanted to ask about was McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, and Bill Buckley's, not necessarily his personal relationship, but I suppose a public relation towards McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Let's say there are young people listening, I would say that are not super familiar with the McCarthy thing. We're in a world right now of Twitter and of doxing people and canceling folks and there's a lot mccarthyism is tossed around left and right bill didn't take a very popular position on mccarthy especially i would assume right now can you familiarize us with who senator mccarthy was what mccarthyism is and how bill reacted to it or talked about that era
1: yes well joe mccarthy was a senator from wisconsin um who in 1950, looking around at what was going on in American politics, and by the way, kept keep in mind, in 1950, Alger Hiss had, uh, was going to be convicted for perjury. Now, what, what difference does that make? Well, Alger Hiss had been a member of the same spy ring that Whitaker Chambers had been. So here was Alger Hiss. Uh, who had denied being a communist, was not only a communist, but a Soviet spy, giving uh, our secrets, U.S. secrets, to Moscow, enabling them to do to uh, uh, you know what we were up to, particularly in things like building the atomic bomb. And it was Whitaker Chambers uh, calling Alger Hiss out that enabled um, Hiss to be brought to trial and finally... Convicted of perjury and sent sent to prison. Joe McCarthy said this. He with Alger Hiss was not the only communist in town, uh, and said there were maybe as many as 80 or 90 or 100 or so who had had uh, high roles in the U.S. government. Uh, this was the beginning of some four years in which Joe McCarthy kept insisting that there were these communists and all kinds of people on the other side, including President Truman denying this um finally um uh, coming out of the some of the charges which joe mccarthy had made which were not always totally substantiated uh he was censured by the u.s senate Uh, and and mccarthyism was was sort of uh denied any kind of a place at the at the table um and as being McCarthyism was making false accusations. Bill didn't buy that. And he wrote a book called McCarthy and His Enemies, along with L. Brent Bozell, in which he documented that in point of fact, there were and had been communists high up in our State Department and having influence and even in the White House as well. And so Bill was a defender of Joe McCarthy. He was a defender, not of McCarthyism, but of this idea that there were communists and had been communists in our government.
0: I would imagine in 2020, the idea that there were people in the U.S. government who believed in a communist political order wouldn't be very shocking at all.
1: No, no, as a matter of fact, we know that there are all kinds of Marxist uh, connections uh, there with the um, Black Lives Matter movement, which is tragic because that Affects, I think what I think should be a very serious consideration of of uh, racial relations in America. but all of a sudden these Marxists are trying to take that group and take it in a totally different and I think, dangerous direction.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Now, you mentioned Whitaker Chambers a few times. Um, there was an interesting section as uh, you mentioned Bill Buckley left the CIA. And a few people had encouraged him to start a magazine, and we know that magazine today is National Review. And there was an interesting thing as he started to build. Well, that... you
1: know, um, it 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 is it is a, a miracle in some sense that uh, Bill Buckley was able to start National Review. He was only 29 years old. Wow. Uh He was not that well known. He would written a couple of books, but. Uh, who, who was he, who was this wunderkind to come along and say, let's start a uh, a weekly magazine. And it was his genius to be able to say, we're going to bring together the traditionalists and the libertarians, but to keep them together, we needed some kind of clear and present danger. And that's where the Soviet Union, which had been bragging in the 1950s, that they were going to bury us. Uh, this is under Joseph Stalin and also under his successor, Nikita Khrushchev. They were going to bury us, and that our grandchildren, Americans' grandchildren, were going to live under communism and not under capitalism. And so it was Bill's genius to say, okay, to, to the trads and to the libertarians, let's stop fighting each other, let's come together. And let's focus on a common enemy. And that common enemy was the Soviet Union and was communism. And the Whitaker Chambers personified that, was able to articulate that, and, and became a, an, a major enabler of the National Review idea of bringing together uh, conservatives.
0: You, you put in your book a letter or a note that Whitaker had written to Bill that said, Conservatives must decide how much to give in order to survive at all, how much to give in order not to give up the basic principles. So sort of that realistic right. tension with, the, right. with the, what we believe in. Can you describe at the time what that meant for, for conservatives? And, mm-hmm. and even as I read it, I thought, that seems to be a major food fight conservatives have today as well.
1: Yes. Well, I, th- I think uh, a couple of things. Um, philosophically, that would mean, you know, you must be true to certain principles. Uh, you don't want to compromise those principles. And to that end, <clears throat> Bill Buckley said, we don't want the uh, the John Birch Society, and more particularly, Robert Welsh, uh, within the movement. We don't want uh, Mr. Welsh making uh, uh, editorial decisions uh, for us Uh and he was referring to the fact that there was a magazine called American Opinion, uh, which uh, published by the John Birch Society, uh, which had a um, monthly uh, uh, guideline as to how communist America was. And it kept going up and up and up in terms of percentages until American Opinion said that America was 60 and 70% controlled by communists. Well, that's just, you know, crazy stuff. And um Bill Buckley said we don't want someone like that to be uh to be in the movement or to have a leadership role. The same thing with anti-semites. He said we don't want kooks, we don't want the anti-semites, and we don't want people like like Ayn Rand um and with her idea that uh, one can never uh worry about uh, anyone else but yourself. He said that that is just such total selfishness and disdain for the community and for the country as not to be allowed. So this was the philosophical side, the political side. Bills had to be uh, a realist. And to that extent, for example, in 1960, uh, when National Review looked at Richard Nixon and Jack Kennedy, um, National Review did not endorse Richard Nixon, just did not get into the political battle of 1960. Whereas in 1968, when Richard Nixon was running against Hubert Humphrey, National Review endorsed Richard Nixon. The principle here, Bill said, was that you support the conservative who has the best chance of winning. And I think that reflects the realism uh, that Bill became and it was um, uh, uh, urged on him by James Burnham.
0: Jeffrey Hart, in his biography, sort of of the magazine, said that that would that quote that realism tension with the holding to what you truly believe would be a banner sort of for the magazine itself moving forward. Would you say that that's conservatism's battle forever?
1: Oh yes, oh yes, <clears throat> that that continues. Uh, you have to think about uh, you know 1964, right? Uh, <laughs> and Barry Goldwater. <clears throat> How realistic was it to back Barry Goldwater, trying to get the presidential nomination and then trying to get the presidency? But there was it. Just, uh, whereas James Burnham even said, "Well, maybe is Nelson Rockefeller that bad a candidate?" Uh, and and Bill would not have any part of that. That was going. That was carrying realism too far. And this is where you must balance principle with politics. And so this was a continuing uh, discussion uh, into the present, uh, is it not? You know, to what extent do you want to be principled, and to what extent do you want to be political?
0: Do you think it's a unique? problem to conservatism as in the the left side of the political landscape doesn't deal with this question.
1: Oh, I think it's both sides, Jake. Okay. Yes. Okay. I think it's both sides of of uh for, you know 1972 for example, the liberals nominated in the Democratic Party uh George McGovern who who turned out didn't have much of a chance, lost 49 states. So there was uh you might say that was a mistake, but sometimes You win by losing. And I think what the liberals were trying to do was to tilt the Democratic Party in a more liberal position. And so that process began by nominating George McGovern in 1972, just as conservatives started the process of making the Republican Party the conservative party by nominating Barry Goldwater in 1964.
0: Right. In terms of National Review, Buckley said that his magazine stands athwart history and yells, stop. Can you tell me about that quote?
1: <laughs> well, he was looking at uh, the White House, uh, where Mr. Mister Eisenhower, the modern Republican, stood. Uh, he was looking at the academy, uh, where you had uh, Marxist professors. Uh, he was looking at the outside world, Where the Soviet Union were in 19, uh, you know, uh, where you had uh, every time anybody tried to stand up to what was going on behind the Iron Curtain, they were uh, brutally uh, suppressed by Soviet tanks. So wherever he looked, whether it was domestically or foreign policy, uh, he saw a pretty dark and gloomy world. So he was saying, that's not what this magazine is all about. That's not what conservatism is all about. Halt! Uh, we're going to provide uh, a conservative choice and not a liberal echo.
0: You follow one of the times that you quote that in the book. You f- you follow it with, but he did it with a wink. The humor abounded. <laughs> <laughs> the humor abounded yes. in the pages of the magazine, and it set it apart from every other conservative journal of the time.
1: Yeah, well, people said we didn't have a you know a sense. I mean, I was. <laughs> I was a kid growing up under Bill Buckley, and I, and I loved Bob Taft and what he had done, but there was, he was always wearing a three-piece suit, uh, never smiling, uh, <laughs> always, it seemed, uh, never willing to tell a joke. And along came Bill, you know, telling one-liners one after the other, you know, that famous line of his, which I love, when he ran for mayor of New York City. Uh, which was the citadel of liberalism in 1965 when he ran at his first press conference. One uh, reporter, sort of being a wise guy, said, well, uh, Mr. Buckley, uh, what's the first thing you're going to do if you win? Ho, ho. And Bill, without without a beat, said, demand a recount. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he was just so, so quick. And that was seen, of course, um, on the, the firing line for some 30 years. Think about it. That's the longest-running public affairs program with one host in, in TV history. You know, 30 years, thousands of, um, of broadcasts. Just uh, just amazing, taking on every outstanding, uh, every well-known liberal, whether it was a uh, Norman Mailer, the novelist, or James Baldwin, or James Wexler, Norman Thomas, on and on and on and on, and more than holding his own with everything. With absolutely,
0: everyone. absolutely. The amount of guests from Tom Wolfe to Thomas Sowell, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, yes, so many people that were on on the firing line.
1: I Hope and encourage your 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 listeners to. Uh, to go look at them. they're they're all available on YouTube, well, most of them anyway, and it's 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 a revelation, and it's fun.
0: Agreed, agreed. What was the reception of the magazine like? So, when National Review, I think it was 1955, when it dropped, uh, what was the re- right. What was the national reception?
1: Well, I think it was it was good. Uh, there there always were you know conservatives being individualists to a fault. There were some critics. <laughs> Uh, but it, uh, it was so obviously filled a, a gap uh, in terms of publications. But then I think people began to understand that what Bill had in mind was not just a magazine, but a movement. And that's why I called him the maker of a movement. Right. That uh, National Review was a political act just as much as it was a, a wonderful new uh, journal and and commentator on what was happening in america at the time
0: you mentioned uh conservatives there are a few being an individualist to a fault and i appreciated and loved the the quote you offered uh when t.s Eliot wrote russell kirk about it
1: yes and, it, and yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: well i think that he that uh i think i think something like uh elliot uh you know very distinguished and uh Said well, maybe may perhaps a little too collegiate for my taste. He perhaps wanted a more serious. But that was just the point that Bill said. We we, we sometimes we're inclined to be too serious uh, and to be too solemn, uh, and we're not going to have that with this magazine. And so it really reflected that uh, that that wonderful spirit, that uh, spree, the decor that uh, that Bill had and which he passed along to us as young conservatives. Uh, we're always going to be grateful to him for that.
0: One of the things I love most about Bill Buckley was his wit and his overall good humor, getting away from sort of a shrill conservatism that has a furrowed brow, um, and that's more centered on gratitude. We conserve things because we're grateful for them.
1: Absolutely.
0: There was a resurgence, uh, from what I could tell, in, in Buckley after the documentary, The Best of Enemies, dropped, uh, which portrayed the debates Buckley had with Gore. at all. I'm not mm. sure if you've seen that.
1: Oh, yes, I have. I have.
0: Was that rivalry everything the documentary made it out to be?
1: Well, I think it was pretty serious at the time, uh, and certainly uh, it got tremendous ratings for ABC which presented at both the uh, uh, Republican and the Democratic uh, conventions in 1968. Um, Bill took it as more or less, at least at the beginning, just one more guest appearance, one more debate. But after um, he saw what uh, Vidal had done and how successful Vidal had been in raising certain questions and even throwing bill off his game a little bit uh... that he took it much more seriously the second second round so to speak which was at the republican convention but even there for the first time and really the only time that i'm aware of bill lost his cool uh, called uh... gore out and lost his temper and was uh... ever after uh... embarrassed about that as a matter of fact he wrote a twenty thousand word apologia uh, which was published in esquire following the debate so it was it was not something that he was that proud of at all and i think it just shows maybe just how uh... that he was <laughs> he was just normal uh... it could be much more like most of us, uh... and not always in command of that uh... that wonderful temper and and wit
0: right it's a fantastic doc. so if anybody i don't know if which uh, streaming platform it's available on. But if you go look up The Best of Enemies, it is a great display of his wit and humor and quick-wittedness and everything else. I'm curious, uh, as you look around conservatism today, is there anybody that you see out in the conservative movement that really is carrying the kind of freight that a Bill Buckley did that's, that uh, is a, is an influential conservative voice and who means it?
1: Well, a couple of things, Jake. Uh, first of all, the, the conservative movement, of course, is much different than it was back in the 1950s and 60s when Bill started right. National Review. There were only three three major strains at that point, branches of the of the movement. Uh, today, there are what? How many? <laughs> Half right. a dozen, maybe even a dozen. Right. Uh, so it's you don't really have any anyone who can sort of really uh, cover all of them, and represent, if you will, all of them. So it's almost impossible to be the kind of fusionist that uh, Bill was at that point. Um, Also, I think that needs to be said that Bill was unique, um, that he was uh, a polymath, that uh, he could do almost anything, and then delighted in trying something new at the age of 50, saying, well, I think I'm going to start writing novels and he did his blackford Oaks series which were best for the next uh, 10 15 years i mean how many people can after spending the first 50 years you know being a serious political analyst can turn around and and do fun spy novels uh, thrillers uh, as bill did with the blackford oaks uh, series so he was unique uh, and i don't think that i think if you ask me i could probably come up with the names of six people who are filling the role, which he did uh, in print, uh, in broadcast, uh, uh, in books, uh, in in lectures and what have you. And maybe even if I gave you those six names, that wouldn't be enough. He was so very, very special.
0: Agreed. Agreed. If you had to condense for people uh, two supreme traits that you personally enjoy about the man. You may have already covered him. But what would you, you know, your elevator pitch to the man on the street about why they should care about Bill Buckley, what would those two things be?
1: Well, I think the, I, would, I would say simply that uh, he was somebody who, who loved America uh, and who believed uh, that it was an exceptional nation, uh, who believed in the, uh, the founding and its principles of limited government and individual freedom, and that he could articulate them better than anybody else that I ever knew. Uh, and I would say that, secondly, that for someone who who had everything, and who who was given everything by his father and mother and his family and the background and so forth, they could have sat around on his on his rear end and just enjoyed life. But instead. He chose to talk about the importance of ordered, what he called ordered liberty, ordered liberty and how to preserve it and how to protect it for some 60 years of his old, old life. And that's such an example of paying back of gratitude that it just sort of blows your mind.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Lee, who would Bill Buckley vote for? in this coming, upcoming election?
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, I, in one sense, its uh, I think it's pretty easy um, if, if the choice is just between Biden and Trump. I right. think there's no question <laughs> that he would be the realist, right? right? He would be a realist, and he right. would go with Trump, who for all of his flaws, and Lord knows he's got plenty of them. Um, Has also done some some good things, uh, whether we're talking about uh, tax reform or deregulation, uh, the problem of immigration, uh, and you know, right down the line. Um, I think because of that, that he would say, consider it, uh, we don't want to go the socialist route. We want to go. We don't want to go down the road to serfdom and to socialism, but to the road to capitalism and freedom, and so therefore he would, he would vote for, uh, for Donald Trump.
0: Lee, last question for you. If folks want to know more now about the life and the works mm. of Bill Buckley, where would you send them to introduce themselves to him?
1: Well, aside from buying a copy of my book and my biography, um, the, the book I would suggest is The Unmaking of a Mayor, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful romp by Bill of what it was like running for mayor of New York City in 1965. It's fun, it's witty, it's wise. Um, it's got uh, some, some wonderful suggestions uh, of, with regard to uh, political moves that might be made to improve life in, in New York City. And secondly, I would say, for heaven's sake, go to YouTube and check out uh, a, a Firing Line episode. And there are just so many of them. And I think there you would get to see just uh, what a marvelous uh, spokesman for the conservative movement Bill Buckley was.
0: All right. There you have it, folks. Go get William F. Buckley Jr., the maker of a movement. Mr. Edwards, thank you so much for taking the time. I sincerely appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Jake. All the best and take care and keep, keep out there talking about the importance of preserving and protecting freedom and liberty.